Today's passage is in Psalms 48 on page 472 in the Bible around the room. So guess what? Today I'm going to read in Portuguese <laughs> as a representation of the diversity of the people of God. Then I'll switch back to English for the benefit of our time and the majority of the congregation. We are all created in his image, so all languages and races are unique and beautiful to God. After I end the passage, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. And we'll all say, thanks be to God. And why do we say this? Because of his wonderful message that he gave us as a guiding light to our paths. Um cântico, salmo dos coraitas. Grande é o Senhor e digno de todo louvor na cidade do nosso Deus. Seu santo monte, belo e majestoso, é a alegria de toda a terra. Como as alturas do Zafão, é o monte Sião, a cidade do grande rei. Nas suas cidadelas, Deus se revela como sua proteção. Vejam. Os reis somaram forças e juntos avançaram contra ela. Quando a viram, ficaram atónitos, fugiram, aterrorizados. Ali mesmo o pavor os dominou. Contorceram-se como a mulher no parto. Foste como o vento oriental quando destruiu os navios de Tarsis. Como já temos ouvido, agora também temos visto na cidade do Senhor dos Exércitos, na cidade do nosso Deus. Deus a preserva firme para sempre. No teu templo, ó Deus, meditamos em teu amor leal. Como o teu nome, ó Deus, o teu louvor alcança os confins da terra. A tua mão direita está cheia de justiça. O monte de Sião se alegra, as cidades de Judá exultam por causa das tuas decisões justas. Percorram Sião, contornando-a com Têm as suas torres, observem as suas muralhas, examinem as suas cidadelas para que vocês falem à próxima geração que este Deus é o nosso Deus para todo o sempre. Ele será o nosso guia até ao fim. This is the word of the Lord. We thank you, God, for being our great God and for eternally guiding us in our paths towards your great plan. We pray that the message you have for us expanded by Pastor Ryan will be sinking into our hearts, minds, and souls so we can be making it right, the right choices and taking the right and correct steps according to your precious will for us. We pray for a special inspiration for Pastor Ryan, as he preaches today, may your blessing and grace be upon us all. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sparks. It's good to see you. If we haven't had the chance to meet yet, uh, my name is Ryan Smith, uh, as she mentioned. Uh, I actually uh, serve on staff at Living Stones, Reno, just down the road. 
as a part of our preaching team there. And so over the summer months in particular, we like to throw uh, different staff members from the different churches around. I think you guys have Pastor Nathan Hornback from Elko, uh, who's going to be here uh, next week or in the following weeks. And so we love to celebrate um, that we as the Living Stones family are not one uh, church, but actually a united family uh, that we believe God's doing something really powerful in Northern Nevada uh, together. And so I'm excited to be with you today. But uh, as we turn our attention to Psalm 48, as I've been thinking about this passage uh, over the, the course of this week, um, I had already written um, an, an introduction, and yet, um, as many of you uh, might have caught on the news um, just yesterday, uh, we had an, another uh, mass shooting uh, here in our country. And, uh, and in the midst of the violence uh, that, that we see on a regular basis, um, it can leave uh, many of us fearful. Um, when, when is it going to be my Walmart? Um, when is it going to be my children's school? I mean, it was six years ago that we had um, one of our own shootings here at one of our schools. And, and as we live in this sort of world, um, it leaves us with a tension, a fear. We might even be paralyzed um, by an anxiety of what it means to live in this world. Um, I can't remember or count how many times either I have thought, I have said, or I have been with someone who has said, what in the world is this world coming to? Where is this world headed? Where are we going? Whether, again, it's the violence that we see within our country, the, the, what feels like a political implosion as two sides are incapable of having a conversation with one another. The 24-7, hours, uh, 24/7 news cycle doesn't seem to be helpful for us. And even these little devices in our pocket that we thought would mean that we'd be more connected have actually separated us further than ever. This question, where in the world are we headed, is, is a heavy one. And so on one hand, uh, <laughs> happy Sunday, but at the same time, uh, I think these are the sorts of questions that we have to wrestle with. Do we have a system, a way of seeing the world that invites us and engages with the world that we actually live in? You see, a Christian worldview that doesn't do anything about the shootings and the violence in the world, about the earthquakes and the rising sea levels or whatever, whatever you want to put in there as your greatest fear, uh, if you don't have a, a worldview that operates within that brokenness, uh, then I would argue we don't have a, a one that's sufficient, one that will work. And so what we find in Psalm 48 today, to bring us back to the text, is in fact a reminder, a resounding prophetic point to what the Christian hope is. And for those of us that are wrestling with fear in the world that we live in, this text invites us to, to put on almost, as it were, these, these glasses that are not rose-colored by any stretch, but actually help us to rightly see the world and where we live in. It's setting before us the prophetic hope and point of all of not only the Bible, but all of human history. And what it sets at the middle of it, as you heard it said multiple times, is this Mount Zion. This Mount Zion. And so as we continue in our restoration series, uh, just a few weeks left, uh, we find Psalm 48, like I said, is a prophetic hope that invites us to take up this hope for ourselves. And so as a simple roadmap for what Psalm 48 wants to do, you'll see this on the slide behind me. Uh, what we'll see in the first two verses is this concept, this idea, this word Zion gets explained. Uh, in the following few verses, we see what happens when Zion gets established, gets set up. Uh, from there, what is the experience of being the people of Zion? And then finally, uh, the eternal life, the eternal um, experience, the eternal establishment of Zion, what that means. And so with that said, why don't we turn our attention to first and foremost, what Zion is. Because if you're anything like most of us here, Zion goes over our heads most of the time. We know it's a Bible word, but goodness me, what in the world is it talking about? And so why don't we look at these first two verses and let's, uh, let's, let's just 
see what Zion is. Let's see how it explains it. Look with me back at the text. Psalm 48.1 says, Great is the Lord, or great is his name in Hebrew, Yahweh, and greatly to be praised. Where is he greatly to be praised? Where is he great? In the city of our God, his holy mountain. It's beautiful in its elevation, and it's the joy of all the earth. What is this place called? It's called Mount Zion, up in the far north, the city of the great king. And so what we see within this is there here, is this is where in her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress. And so what is Zion? Zion is, I mean, the word doesn't mean much, but within the Bible, this idea of Zion becomes this pointer and picture, not only of the mount that the temple sat on, but all of the story of the Bible. Zion was the whole story. It's the mountain point that's pointing to the whole story of the Bible. And so just look at this. Where, where is Zion? Zion is the place where God is Lord. It's where he's being praised. It's where, it's, it's his city. It's, it's where God dwells, but it's also down here where we dwell. One way of understanding this is that Zion is the place where heaven and earth intersect, where God's space and our space seem to overlap, where his reign is not just a hope, but it's readily realized. Throughout the scriptures, heaven is talked about as God's throne and the earth as his footstool. It's like, where, you know, it's, it's, it's his ottoman that he kicks his feet up on. And specifically, that the edge of this ottoman where his foot rests is understood to be this crossover place, this Zion temple mountain place. This is the language that was used for the Garden of Eden in Genesis 1 and 2. It was the language for the tabernacle, the tent of meeting for the people in Exodus. It was the temple on Mount Zion. Again, it's a language, it's an understanding. Zion is where heaven and earth intersect. Now, what I want to do, though, is, is when we use this language of heaven and earth intersecting, uh, that is a foreign concept for most of our understanding of heaven. Large in part, when we say heaven, what we think of is naked babies playing harps and where grandma and grandpa are right now where we go when we die. And although that is part of the story of the Bible, this misses out on what heaven is all about. Now, instead of giving a whole sermon on this, um, I, I thought what we would do is just watch a little five-minute video uh, from a, a group called The Bible Project. One of the, the guys behind this is actually one of my professors at Western Seminary. So it's not like this is a weird guy or anything. Um, so five-minute video, we're gonna watch this together. And what this is going to do is just pay attention and just see... Uh, so hopefully what this will do is make explaining Mount Zion as we continue a little bit easier. We'll see what the Bible's talking about. There's a microphone attached to me. Um, so why don't we uh, roll that beautiful bean footage and I'll be back in five minutes. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here, there's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning. 
where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice 
has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. How are we doing? Helpful, right? Um, yeah, that five minutes would have taken me like three hours and like it just would not work. So what I, what I want you to hear is they didn't explicitly use language of Zion, but language of the Garden of Eden, language of the temple, language of the tabernacle, language of the new Jerusalem, the city of God. This is all what Zion is trying to encapsulate. And so when we read Psalm 48, there is a prophetic expectation where the, the psalmist, the sons of Korah who wrote this, as they are singing this song, they are meditating on the point of where human history is going. They believe there is a Messiah coming and that somehow this Messiah will bring God's space and our space back together again. And so when we talk about Zion being explained, this is it. The Zion is the intersection of heaven and earth, the place where our space and God's space seem to blur a little bit, whether that is Mount Zion um, and on the Temple Mount or in Jesus Christ or today in the church or one day throughout all of creation. This is what we're talking about when we're talking about Zion. Now, before we move into the establishment, the experience of Zion, um, what I want to do today and just reading through this is what we could do is, is really get into the sons of Korah, their perspective and what they're um, really driving at when they're talking about this. When they say Zion, they're thinking about a physical temple mountain. When they talk about the king of Zion, they are thinking about King David. Now, we could spend some time there and then connect to Jesus. After watching that video, I just want us to assume that there's a prophetic expectation of Psalm 48 that is wrapped up in Jesus and in his community, the church, and in all of creation, and read the psalm through that lens. Does that make sense? I hope it does. Um, and so with that being said, well, we'll just say, I'll say this. And if you disagree with that, um, you're disagreeing with Jesus. <laughs> uh, he says multiple times um, that all of the scriptures testify about me. And I believe he's talking about Psalm 48 and you know, the rest of the Old Testament. But why don't we look to then the establishment of, uh, of, of Zion, of this God's space and our space. And so look with me back into verse 3 again. Let's just read this first question. Within her citadels, talking about the temple, God has made himself known as a fortress as a fortress, as salvation. And so we ask ourselves, where has God made himself known as a fortress, as, as salvation for us? Well, yes, in the temple, right? But as we're talking about, where most vividly, where most profoundly has God made himself known as a fortress? The person and work of Jesus Christ. The person and work of Jesus Christ. And so God has set up and established Jesus as uh, his dwelling place, as we saw John 1, his tabernacle. In Colossians 2.9, the apostle Paul writes that the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. Zion is established in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But as soon as God's space and our space overlaps and the reign of God is established, what happens? Look with me in verse 4, where it says, For behold, 
the kings assembled. They came on together. As soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight, trembling to cold of them there, anguish as of the woman in labor. So as soon as God establishes his dwelling place, his reign in Jesus Christ, what happens? Well, the kings of the world come together. They assemble. Uh, the word there is for planning and scheming. As Psalm chapter 2 mirrors, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth, there is that same language there, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Repeatedly throughout the scripture, we see that as soon as God establishes his reigning place, the kings of the world throw themselves against it. Again, most profoundly and vividly, we see this in Jesus Christ. Three years into his ministry, what do the kings and rulers of the day do? They seize him. They take him, they crucify him. Jesus died and was buried. But on the third day, the great hope of Christianity is we believe in the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what was that day like for the kings of the world? And what will their final day be like? Well, look at all the verbs that happen here in the text. As soon as they see it, what is it? God as salvation, him as a fortress. You could say, as soon as they saw the resurrected Messiah, what do they do? They are, I love, look how quickly the verbs here, it's in, in the Hebrew, it's just uh, verb, 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 verb. So there's no like they were, they were, they were. It's literally, they saw it, astounded, panicked, flew away. They trembled, they took anguish. It's just verb after verb. It's a very quick little thing. And so it's almost comedic. These kings are all getting together. They're scheming and conniving. And then as soon as they see God, it's pew, they run for the hills. They take off. They leave like the dust shape of them. And so what is the final fate of these kings, the ones who came against the Lord's anointed and yet have now uh, on the run, both spiritual and uh, uh, physical, political powers? What happens to them? Look with me in verse 8 or verse 7. By the east wind, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. Now, by the east wind, this is just a weird Bible nerd thing that I always feel like, yeah. Anyway, by the east wind, what this does when we read by the east wind, this makes us think that the psalm is specifically talking about an actual physical battle where these kings were like coming in on the ships of Tarshish. In, in the Hebrew, it could be argued that it, what, it, what it's trying to, to, to say is uh, that you shattered them almost like or as the east wind shatters the, teep, the, the ships of Tarshish. So now why this is important is what this is saying is it's comparing the kings to these ships of Tarshish. And ships of Tarshish are seen throughout the Bible. It's a hard ship of Tarshish. Um, sorry. Ships of Tarshish uh, are, are regularly uh, detailed throughout the scriptures as being, I mean, they're detailed as having like precious metals and gold and peacocks and apes. And it's all of the things of the greatness of, of a king. And, and yet, oftentimes, these ships, because they were carrying so much stuff, all it took was one little wind, and all of that, bloop, right, gone forever. And so what the psalmist says, I believe, uh, is, is saying here is, all of these kings and all of their pomp and success, all of their greatness, all of the things that they have built, uh, all it takes is one little east wind, and bloop, they're gone. And so the question to consider as we read through this is not to um, sit idly by and think that we are somehow um, okay with just reading this from a distance as watching Zion in the Kings. The psalm is inviting you to question, where am I in the story? Am I on Mount Zion with the king and in his victory? 
Or am I living a life in such that I, I'm more comfortable with the kings on their ships of Tarshish, delighting in all of my success, my apes and my purple dye, right? Maybe you don't have peacocks, but we all have something, some ship that we're riding on, something that we think this is the determining factor of my victory. And we do so as we make our advance against the Lord and his, his anointed, his Messiah. And so that's the question asked, where are you? Are you on Mount Zion today, delighting in the victory of your king, or are you on your ship figuring out how you will find your own victory? It's the moment to consider who is the reigning authority in your life. But for those who honor the king of heaven and earth, the king of Zion, their experience is much different than the king's. Another way of understanding this is to go back to the Venn diagram of heaven and earth, is that heaven and earth are coming together and for those that have placed themselves against the rule and reign of heaven, they, they have, they, <laughs> it's going to happen. And so your question is, are you a part of God's movement in this world, or are you advanced against it? But for those who are part of it, they uh, get to experience Zion. So let's continue in verses 8 through 11. So as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, again, Zion, which God will establish forever. Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. So the question is, if the verbs of those who are uh, advancing against the Lord's anointed are they took flight, they were astounded, they ran off, the, the, the pains of a woman in labor uh, seized them, trembling, Look at the verbs in these passages. These are people who have heard and seen that God has been victorious. These are people who have thought, they have meditated on the steadfast love of God. They are in his temple. They are praising God, taking his praise to the ends of the earth. They are uh, uh, extending the right hand of God's uh, righteous, his justice. Who are these sorts of people? They're the opposite, first and foremost, of the kings of the earth. But also, these are the people that live on Zion. For us today, if Jesus is the one who is established, this is describing what it means to be the people of God. This is describing what it means to be the church, what it means to be a Christian. And so practically, this is an understanding that to be the church is to be those that as uh, Pentecost forward, that we have been filled with the Holy Spirit. That just like Jesus was the, the dwelling place of God with man, that in some way, us broken little mess ups that we are, are somehow the intersection of heaven and earth today. The reign and rule of God being realized within our place. And so practically, to be a Christian, it means that, well, first and foremost, we see and hear, this is language of believing. We see and hear that, that God is God and Christ is the King of Zion. It means that we think, as it says, on his steadfast love. We're meditating about God's goodness and the way that he has uh, saved us from our ships of Tarshish and brought us to the groundedness of Mount Zion. And this happens as we take God's praise to the ends of the earth, through evangelism and mission, inviting people to step off of their ships and come to the safety in the place where heaven and earth are meeting in Jesus Christ. And finally, we do this as the church as we are extending the hand of God's righteousness. Again, or in Hebrew, his justice to the ends of the earth. Where there is injustice and suffering, we bring peace and hope. We take up the cause of the widow, the orphan, the unborn, the oppressed, and the immigrant and set to see things right. 
Simply put, to be a Christian is for us to make earth garden again. This is the way that we think about our lives. Where we walk through our days and like Jesus, we are bringing the the realized reign of Jesus into our spots, our homes, our work, our schools. And so we're just beginning to develop an imagination as the people of God. Where does this look less like the Garden of Eden? Where does this look more like hell than heaven? And what does it mean for me to bring just a little bit of heaven here, the rule of God in this place? What if we legitimately began to start posturing our whole lives as joining Jesus's mission to join heaven and earth together again? Another word for this is reconciliation, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So God has not only reconciled all things through Christ, he has given us the calling to join in that reconciling work. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you then on the behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Another way of saying making earth and heaven one is he is reconciling all things in heaven and earth. And so the practical implications of this psalm is that we understand ourselves as agents of reconciliation, that we are moving out into our lives and our world looking for uh, economic systems that breed poverty, ecological behavior that abuses God's creation, sexual ethics that destroy human beings, abuse, neglect, anxiety, depression, pain, hurt, anger, fear, anything that looks more like hell than heaven. And we are asking, how can we help this be reconciled to God? First doing this within ourselves as a community and then moving out into the world and bringing this sort of thing to the city of Sparks or wherever you might live. And we do all of this as we keep our eyes set on the fact that we are not simply trying to be ambassadors for something or that it all even rides on us, but we are simply messengers of the coming kingdom of God, the thing that will be the eternal Zion, which is where the psalm ends. Uh, Let's continue in verses uh, 12, 11 through 14. So then, let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah, that's a way of talking about the little townlets around Jerusalem, rejoice because of your judgments, because of your justice, because of the ships of Tarshish and their kings sinking. Walk about Zion, go around her, number her towers, consider well her ramparts, go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that, This is God, our God, forever and ever. He will guide us forever. The psalm ends with gladness and joy, with Zion and her surrounding towns, her daughters, rejoicing for the justice of God. And so the people then are invited, this walking about her, what's this an invitation to? Is even though all the kings of the world came up against Zion, the psalm ends with the people walking around Zion and numbering her ramparts, seeing how even the kings in all of their attack they didn't leave a scratch. All the ramparts are there. All her citadels are still intact, even though the gates of hell have advanced, like they they did not advance. They did not prevail. The psalm ends with the people of Zion delighting in Zion forever and ever. They somehow have this gift of long, or could we even say eternal life in telling the next generation that this is God. 
and one of the most uh, insane, there's, there's sometimes, again, this is a fun Bible geek out thing, but in, in the end of the Psalm 14, it says, he will guide us forever. There are some Hebrew, every now and then you get little variant words uh, in, in, in Hebrew manuscripts. And what, what is the statement to how incredible our Bible is, is that we're able to find these things fairly easily because there's so much consistency. But every now and then there'll just be little differences. And in verse 14 of some, some manuscripts of the Old Testament in the Psalms, it does not say he will guide us forever, but it says he will guide us through death. You can see that with the footnote um, with, with two, that he will guide us beyond death, that this is the hope of Zion. I mean, yes, he will guide us forever, but specifically that he will guide us through death. And so this is, this is, where, this is where history is going. The God who will guide you and I through death. The God who, even though the kings of this world and their cronies, they may rage against all that God is trying to establish. At the end of the day, God is going to win. Zion is going to be established. And we're invited to experience that right now. And so no matter what you see on the news, no matter what you're going through personally, this is where history is going. And you get to be a part of that. Your confidence is not in your life. Your confidence is not in what you do. Your confidence is that I am a member, a citizen of Zion, and this is the winning team. And so to end, in the 18th century, uh, there's an Anglican uh, minister named John Newton. He was a slave trader who turned abolitionist. That is, he was a slave trader who became a Christian and then saw the work he was doing was actually contributing not to heaven, but to hell. And he started fighting against it. He's well known as the composer for Amazing Grace. What a hymn that could only be written from someone that gave his life to slave trade. But among his other hymns, there's one that's called Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Zion, City of Our God. How's that for a song title? That's like one of the ones that you're like, your iPod has to like scroll for five minutes to give you the full title. Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, Zion, City of Our God. And in these few short stanzas of this song, uh, John Newton uh, gives us the essence of Psalm 48 and with it, the whole entire story of scripture, describing the benefits of being a citizen of heaven, of the place where heaven and earth meet, the end goal for all of creation. And so what I wanna do is just end by reading, um, uh, uh, not all five stanzas, but, but what is it? Four of them I got here? Four of them. Um, and then I'll pray and then we'll come to the table. How's that sound? Now we'll warn you, it is 16th century English but it's not too bad. Um, so, glorious things of thee are spoken, Zion, city of our God. He whose word cannot be broken, form thee for his own abode. On the rock of ages founded, what can shake your sure repose? With salvation's walls surrounded, thou mayst smile at all thy foes. See the streams of living waters springing from eternal love. Well supply thy sons and daughters and all fear of want remove. Who can faint while such a river ever flows their thirst assuage? Grace, which like the Lord, the giver, never fails from age to age. So blessed inhabitants of Zion, washed in the Redeemer's blood, Jesus, whom their souls rely on, makes them kings and priests to God. Tis his love his people raises over self to reign as kings, and as priests his solemn praises each for a thank offering brings. Savior, if of Zion city I through grace a member am, let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading is the worldling's pleasure, all his boasted pomp and show, remember the ships of Tarshish, solid joys and lasting treasure, none but Zion's children know. This is the story of the Bible. It's the story of Zion. 
It's the story of heaven and earth coming back together, together and separated. And God, as a movement of grace, is restoring rebel kings like you and me and bringing us back into his beloved kingdom. So it's a movement of grace that we are saved out of our brokenness and now we are not only transformed and saved, but sent back into our world to reconcile all things to God. Let's pray. God, this is uh, your uh, establishment of what it means uh, to be the people of God. It's to be the people of Zion. And uh, God, sometimes our, uh, our allegiances can lie uh, more towards ourself, more towards our country, more towards uh, the place that we work uh, than you. And so, God, we become ambassadors for our own kingdom. We become ambassadors for our own country. We become ambassadors for all the things that we idolize and worship. And you have called us to be ambassadors of your Zion kingdom. So, Father, I pray that for those of us here that know you and have been saved by you, that you might, uh, God, uh, just remind us of this calling today. God, for those of us that uh, keep uh, going back to our ships, our ships of success, our ships of, uh, of what we uh, uh, place our identity in. God, would you help us to see those ships shattered? And uh, God, that your beloved son Jesus has, has dove in after us uh, in the wreckage to save us and bring us uh, to his holy mountain. Uh, be with us as we meet at the table. Let me pray.